Well, good morning and happy Sunday to you. We do something here at New City every July 4th weekend, which is live Q&A Sunday, which literally means you text in your questions and we will do the best that we can to answer them. A few things to let you know of. Number one, we literally need you to ask questions or else we won't have anything to answer. So text that number. Your name will not be shown anywhere. No one will know who is asking it. So literally, we, will, we want you to ask whatever you have about God, faith, Christianity. Um, we're going to give a couple minutes to each answer, so they're not going to be super comprehensive. And I promise you, we have not looked at these questions. Uh, someone asked me yesterday if I had studied up on the questions that were being asked. And I said, I don't know what the questions are that are going to be asked. And so that number will be up the whole time. Um, but yeah, I would encourage you, if you have a question, to ask it. And we will do our best to answer it for you. And so with that, we'll start with uh, number one, and it says this, Christina. Okay, we'll start with a fun one. Why did you dump Dylan three times before marriage? I want to know. I want to know this one too. First of all, it's two times, not three times. (laughs) And uh, for a lot of reasons, but... But we're back together, and we're married and happy. Um, Yeah, so a short answer. (laughs) I don't even know how to answer this. Um, One of the reasons I dumped him one time was because he didn't call me for six weeks, so. I was uh, serving the Lord in the Middle East in a highly co-op mission that I could not, couldn't, so. Bruh. (laughs) You had that one coming. Well, you know, everybody makes mistakes, and she made two of them. Yes, I, everyone does make mistakes. So that was fun. All right. So for real, (laughs) let's go uh, the first question. And again, text them as you have things that come up to you. Um, Can we know what heaven is like? So I I would say we can know more than we think we can. Um, Basically, I mean, there's a lot that we can't know, and there's a lot that we don't know. But I I would say, again, we're trying to do this succinctly, and I don't have all the stuff in front of me. In my study of it, uh, there is more in there than, than we think that, 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 that there is. For example, I think a lot of times we think heaven is just floating around, singing worship songs, you know, forever and ever, and that, for, for being honest, might sound kind of boring. Um, as a pastor, that sounds kind of boring. I would say two things to that. One, that's not what we see in Scripture. We actually see that we're going to have roles and responsibilities. Um, there's going to be things that for us to do. It's going to be in a way that it's not frustrating and difficult. It's going to, heaven is going to be, the kingdom of God is going to be much greater than we could even imagine. And part of it is not just because everything is great and going well, but part of that is because we are actually in the presence of God. I think now, again, as a human being, if I were just to sing worship songs all day, that would seem kind of boring to me. I think if we're actually in God's presence, there's probably nothing else we would rather do. When we actually see how worthy and holy he actually is, it'll actually cause us to want to do that. Um, So we don't have an answer of exactly what it is. Dave's flipping somewhere, so he's going to answer it for us. Suffice to say that we're not going to be sitting around singing songs, although that will be part of it. We're actually going to have stuff to do, and it's going to be more incredible than we can conceptualize uh, here on this earth. Um, My understanding is that um, heaven is a place that's outside of creation. So all that we know right now, all that we experience, all that we can know other than God's presence is in creation. And even God's presence is in creation in that sense. So when you read the scriptures and it's describing heaven, remember it's using uh, physical time, space, words, and descriptors to describe something which is outside of time, outside of space, and in God's presence. So Anytime you read that, just know these are descriptors that cannot fully picture it. But one of the passages that I love that talks about heaven is uh, Revelation 21, where it talks about the new city and the new heaven, the new Jerusalem. And the thing that really gets me excited about that is it says there will be no need for a sun because the glory of the Lord will illuminate that. 
Now I go, okay, can we imagine a universe with no sun? No. Can I imagine a place where there is no sun and the glory of the Lord shines about us that we have no need for illumination? Not really. But I'm looking forward to it. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that and all those kinds of things. So just remember that when you're thinking about heaven, that it's way better than you can imagine. Um, but it's really difficult to describe. And every place in scripture, when it is described, it's using human terms inside time and space to describe something that is otherworldly. Um, and that makes for really cool uh, descriptions, but also temporal descriptions. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is obviously God is in heaven. And so if you want to know what heaven is like, one, one thing that you can know is to know God more. and what, what is he like? Yep. Um, and what is his glory like? And I'll say one more thing too. <clears throat> I want to be, I want to be <clears throat> respectful <clears throat> and what, I, what I'm saying here, because I, I understand the sentiment, you know, when my dad died. First of all, I probably should introduce who's on stage. Let me do that real quick. Yeah. I'm Dylan. This is my wife, Christina, if you don't know. Dave is on the management team here at New City Church and is the old, old, all wise one and old wise one, too. The token old person <laughs> is what I so, am. No. Um, one thing I'll say, <clears throat> so if, if you know my story for our New City, you probably do. You know, 10 years ago, I lost my dad to a suicide. You know, he loved Jesus, and so he's in heaven, not because of who he is or what he did, but because he followed Jesus. And I remember after he died, people said, you know, it was the, you know, the, this, the typical, you know, rest of the peace, as people would say, all that sort of thing. And I remember thinking, I, I get what we mean by that, but rest in peace kind of makes it seem like there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, it's just all good now. And I'm like, I don't think he's resting. I mean, he's resting in the sense of like, he's not tired, like we get physically tired, but I'm like, he's probably, he's more alive than he's ever been. And that's what the kingdom of God is. And so, next question. <clears throat> What does it look like to take a Sabbath? If you're like, what is a Sabbath? It's, you know, start in the Old Testament with the Israelites. God said, you know, on the seventh day he rested. He commands and encourages us to take a Sabbath to, re- to rest and to worship. Uh, so, Dave, what does it look like to take a Sabbath? Um, I don't know the church's theological position on Sabbath, Dylan, so I probably need you to start with that one. He said he was going to do that. You've already used it, so if we get a harder question, you can't use that again. I will use that every time it's appropriate. <laughs> Here's what I'll, I'll say this. Uh, we did the Ten Commandments last summer. You know, obviously, is the fourth. I don't know which commandment it is. Somewhere in there. You know, to, to remember the Sabbath and make it holy. Uh, we live in a much different context and culture um, than, than, that, than, than when that was written. Uh, my, it is my belief that it is, it is wise to take a 24-hour period to, to not work. Um, to not, if possible, to not, and I don't even mean not, not work like whatever your job is, but not even be doing a bunch of chores, taking 24 hours to rest. Now, that might be a Sunday for you. Um, for someone like me, or maybe that you work on Sundays, it might be a Saturday, it might be a Monday, it might be a Wednesday, but it is wise, and God says he created it for, uh, man, he created it for us. And so I think sometimes we look at it, it's like something I have to do. If you look at all the research, rest, rest and relaxation actually makes you more efficient, it makes you live longer. It does a lot of things. My recommendation is, as believers, I, st- I think it's something wise. It's to our own peril to ignore that. And so to try to find a day, even if you work in retail, so maybe it's not the same day every week, but try to, fi- try to find a 24-hour period um, where you are not working, where you're resting, where you're doing things. And by resting, it means things that energize you. So if you're an introvert, maybe that means hanging out, not going out, doing a bunch of things. If you're like me and like sitting like gives you jitters, it means going and doing stuff, being with people. Um, but like for us, we don't do it great, but for us, it's kind of Friday night to Saturday night or Friday evening to Saturday evening. It's kind of our Sabbath where we're trying to do things, particularly on Saturday with our family but that are non-working things. But I would say try to find a 24-hour period where you could actually rest um, and, and thank God for that would be wise. 
Yeah, I would say that it's absolutely biblical and God does tell us to do it, so the Sabbath is important. Um, I think it's really hard to do in our context because the quickest way to get ahead is to not Sabbath. So it's also a way to trust God, to trust that what God says is good, that I'm going to take rest, which means I might not get as quick in my career as someone ahead as someone else might. Uh, and so it, it's it's trusting God's faithfulness and all of that. But I think it's wise the Sabbath. God rested on the Sabbath day. I think it's something that should be done. Um, and another note about that, just like practically speaking, I love what Jeff Bethsky says about the Sabbath. He says, like, if you, it's kind of like Christmas. Like, if you have a bad Christmas, you don't cancel Christmas forever. I think what we often want to do is we read a book about Sabbath or we heard about Sabbath, and so we're like, oh, we're going to create Sabbath. And then, like, we messed up. Like, we worked a little or it wasn't restful or, like, things just didn't go well. So we're like, well, forget that. I guess I can't Sabbath. But you don't just throw it out the window. You try again next week. Um, so I usually tend to go to the practical. So I'll practically tell you what a Sabbath looks like for Dylan and I right now as we're trying to figure that out. So we have two young kids, so it's not doing whatever we want to do because they need to be fed and taken care of and all those things. Uh, but we spend time with them, and we do things that energize them so that we can rest. So we'll, like, take them to a park. We'll take them to an indoor playground so that we can rest and talk while they play. Um, it looks like making a dreamsicle smoothie with, like, ice cream, like a, a sweet treat for us to enjoy um, and just taking time to rest and not work. So it means no checking work email, no dealing with work things if we can at all cost, uh, and just taking time to enjoy God's creation and what he's done. Yep. And biblically speaking, and this is, again, people can disagree, Sabbath does not just mean relaxing, it also means worshiping God. So ideally, you know, like on a Sunday, for example, was a way you could do it. So for some people, again, because of our culture and your schedule, it might not be the same. So maybe you take a Tuesday off, but you're able to come to church on a Sunday or join your community group. It might not be the same day. But ideally, there's an intentional worship of God somewhere in your week in 24 hours of resting. So, next question. Um, we're looking. Uh, what book in the Bible do you think people are most intimidated by, and you, and that you believe is valuable to read? Revelation is probably the most intimidating, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. You guys are looking so. at me. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about this. I, I don't know what book would be most intimidated by and that would be valuable to read. So let me start with the second half first. <clears throat> I believe that all books of the Bible are valuable to read. In fact, um, as we were prepping for this, we didn't, I, didn't, I told Dylan we were crazy to do this, this kind of q This is the third year. You know, we've had it to July 4th. And the it's first, still like, insane. First year, he was like, no. I was like, Dave, you do so great. Help it's me. still insane. Um, <laughs> So I believe every book of the Bible is valuable to read. Um, and after last week, our sermon talking about uh, the value of the Old Testament, I thought, well, I'm just going to read the whole New Testament in preparation for this Q&A, and I'll just kind of brush up on everything. And then Sunday, I was like, well, now i got to read the whole Old Testament too. <laughs> but every book of the Bible is valuable to read. What would be most intimidating? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I'm, I really don't know. What's intimidating to you guys? Yeah, I think Revelation is intimidating because it's just there's a lot of imagery in there and it's confusion and there's a lot of debate on whether it's realistic or like more metaphorical. And so it can be really confusing, I think. Um, but I agree with Dave. I think it's all valuable to read. And there's so many tools that can help you. So it's not like you have to understand it at first glance in order to be a good Christian or like I think a lot of times we want to avoid reading our Bibles because we're afraid of what it might say or afraid we won't understand it. But you're certainly not going to understand it if you ignore it. So 
pick it up and, and dive in and, uh, and get the help that you need. There's tons of study tools out there and great podcasts and great things on YouTube and scholars and like free courses and talking to other believers about what they think about it yeah. uh, to learn and to dive, d- dive deeper. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the stereotypical verse we'll go to. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that men of God and women may be complete, equipping, equipped for every good work. Now, what's interesting is, you know, last week, Joe was up here, we were talking about the Old Testament in our First Corinthians series, is that the early believers, when they read that, they would have, what would have come to mind was the Old Testament. Like, that's, that was scripture for them. And I think sometimes in our culture today, because especially we're, we're Western Americans, we have to get things done, check things off the list, feel like we have accomplished something. But sometimes we get intimidated reading books like Revelation or Leviticus or some of the Old Testament prophets, because we're just like, I don't know what this means, so we avoid it. However, uh, I think we have to get moved past the, I have to get something from this every single time. Like, it's okay to read things and be like, I'm not sure what that meant. Um, I, I, one person, Jen Wilkin, who is a Bible teacher, uh, she talks about how oftentimes you'll read things for later. Because it, it, there's nothing worse than being in crisis and having nowhere to go to, nowhere, nowhere to turn, or not having a foundation. Mm-hmm. So it's good when you're not in crisis to spend time reading all of God's Word because you don't know what you'll need later on. But I would say, yeah, it, just because you're intimidated by it and don't understand, don't let that stop you. Because I do think while there are things that are confusing, you can pick up on more things than you think that you can if you would just give it a shot. So, I'll just add this. If you're intimidated by something, there's a reason for that. So one of my things to encourage you would be simply just start. Like, if you're intimidated by not knowing everything about Revelation, join the club. (laughs) Like, I have read tons of scholars on Revelation. I disagree with most of them. And then I think, wait, they're really smart. I'm not. They've done PhDs in this. I haven't. And I still think they're wrong. So don't let that intimidate you. Don't let that, like, there's just things in Revelation that you go, yep, not really sure about that. Don't really know what that means, but I'm just going to keep going because the issue isn't do I understand everything. The issue is am I growing in my knowledge and understanding and wisdom and practice of the Lord, and all Scripture helps with that. So just kind of power through, find the stuff that works for you. You find things that motivate you, connect with things. And then my last thing would just be this is why we study the Scriptures as a community. This is why community groups are so important. This is why having people in your life that you can talk over stuff with. Because when you say, hey, I've just read this passage and it seems pretty jacked up to me and I don't really know what to do with it. And the people around you go, oh, well, here's what I think about that. And you go, oh, never thought of that. Just simple things by being in community and loving one another well and caring and sharing your wisdom and knowledge together can really make a difference. So don't let it stop you. Just keep going. Because right. um, there's a lot of cool imagery. Like seriously, where else in the Bible are you going to read about a dragon? <laughs> fighting a battle like that's just way cool lord of the rings is not anywhere near as cool as that chapter so and if you're really into revelation breaking news guys early spring next year we're going to spend some time in the book of revelation so whoa we'll answer your questions and they will disagree with all of it so (laughs) that's probably true though he doesn't know he's preaching the whole thing next question Then it will all be right. <laughs> there we go. That's why you're so nervous. You know I have all the answers right here. <clears throat> How does God save people? Do we choose him or does he choose us? Yes. <laughs> Are you wanting me to go by looking at me, Dylan? Yeah, let us know. I don't want to say something wrong, so. <laughs> um, how does God save people? God saves people by grace 
that's how God saves people. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we've been saved, uh, not a, a result of our works that no one should boast. Um, we are saved by grace through faith. Just go right there to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 there. We're saved by grace through faith. Christ paid the penalty. It is accomplished. It is done. Salvation is available and waiting for any and all who call on the name of the Lord. Scripture is super clear on that. So when I'm preaching how you become a follower of Jesus, I would tell someone you need to place your faith in him. The fact that they have the ability to place their faith in Jesus comes through the grace of God. Because if you go back earlier in that chapter, Ephesians 2, 5 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So you don't stand around saying to dead people, get up and believe. Hey, could you, could you just start doing something? They're dead. They have no ability. There is no calling them to something. So it's only by God's grace and mercy that we have the ability to believe. Now, if that means you lean more towards, hey, we're saved by faith, great. If that means you think, oh, he chose me, so that's why I have faith, great. I think either position is really well founded in the scriptures. I have a particular bent. I went to a particular seminary that's got a particular bent to one particular way. But the reality is you're saved by grace through your faith. Where they come from, I say, God, everybody else says whatever they want. (laughs) Yeah, I think this one is really difficult, and there's obviously a lot of debate uh, on this. But I think for me and from what I've read, it is confusing because it kind of, the scripture kind of points to both. And you're like, how can that be both? And I don't, my answer, it just is. And I think it's one of those things that's just kind of beyond our understanding. Uh, Like what Dave was talking about earlier, like God is so much bigger than us, you know, when it comes to heaven, like he's using these terms, like it's just something we can't imagine because it's not part of creation. And I think this is one of those same things. And I think the important thing is, it's okay to disagree. So a lot of people kind of camp out in one of these, like, oh, either God saved me or I chose him. Um, And I think we just need to be loving towards each other, and it's okay to disagree or to have a bent and leaning towards one area, and we can still all commune with one another. Yeah, I'll just read Ephesians 2 real quick, the first couple verses that David is referencing. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. It says, we too all, he's talking to believers here, we too all previously lived among them in our flesh, desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. And then he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has loved, had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though you were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. So the question is, what do you, dead things can't resurrect themselves. He, he, again, there, here's what's, I, someone actually asked me this question yesterday. And well, here's what I say, faithful Christians can and disagree. And you made me go first? Yeah, I wanted to see. <laughs> um, faithful Christians can disagree. At the end of the day, like David said, is what are you doing with Jesus? However that comes about, it, it doesn't, it, ultimately whatever you do with Jesus matters. And I, and I would say this, it's not a cop out to say, I don't know. Some people are like, well, you don't know this, you don't know this. I'm like, Let's just hope for a second, if God exists and he knows everything and we don't, there ought to be things that we can't fully understand. I think when you look throughout scripture, starting with God choosing Abraham or Noah, the Israelites, I think, I think it's quite clear that apart from the, God's Holy Spirit somehow, some way working in our life, I do not think that we would choose God on our own. I don't think we would. However, we also see that we are fully culpable for our own decisions. And so I think it's in a way that we can't fully understand that God... Cho- I, I also think it paints a very beautiful picture to know that God chose you. 
I do think scripture says that repeatedly, that he didn't just say, oh, whoever decides to love me is in. He says, no, 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 I wanted him, I want her, I want her. So it says that God chose us. At the same time, it says God desires everybody come to repentance. And at the same time, we are responsible for our actions. So I think there is a choosing and a free will element that goes together in a way that we can't fully understand. And the question is, how do we know if we're saved? Is simply this, what do, you, what do you do with Jesus? Do you trust and follow that he is who he says he is? Not just that Jesus was alive or a person. Even James says that the, believe, the demons believe in God and shudder. It's what do you do with Jesus? And how do we choose him? He chooses us. I think it works in a way that we can't fully understand. So hope that helps. <clears throat> Next question. If I sin because it is in my nature, why does God hold me responsible? Dave, that is a great question. <laughs> um, because you did it. Uh, Dylan alluded to this as well. There, we do have a nature. Uh, it was handed down to us uh, from the beginning. Uh, we have a sin nature, and we are responsible for what we do with it. Um, but we are dead in our trespasses and sins. I've never met anybody who's told me that they perfectly lived up to even their own standard of morality. Never, never met anybody who was like, oh, yeah, I chose my own standard. Here's my standard, and I've perfectly lived up to it. No one says that. Everyone's like, yeah, I got a standard morality. Have you perfectly lived up to it? No, no, I've kind of broken my, even my own rules a few times. So to me, the question isn't where did it come from. The question is you know you're sinful. You know you've broken God's law. What are you going to do with it? Um, and God holds us responsible because he's God. You know, sometimes we want to think about ourselves and God, and we kind of create God as like this, either a grandfatherly figure that we kind of ignored but gave us candy when we were a kid, um, or sometimes we create God as like my homie who's like kind of over there, and you know, we hang out when I want to, but he's not really in charge of me. And other times, you know, God's just kind of this far off, distant thing. The reality is God is personal, God is real, and God is God, and we are his creation. He created us. He made us. So he kind of designed the whole thing. There's gravity because God decided there'd be gravity. If God decided there wouldn't be gravity, we would all be floating around. Now, that would be a cool world. It would be a different world. I started thinking about that the other day, and I was like, how do astronauts go to the bathroom in space with no gravity? Gravity's like really important to relieving oneself. And then I didn't want to think about it. But God creates the world the way it is, and he did. And going back and saying, God, why did you? You don't get very far. What I can say is, why did you? Where are you, and what are you going to do with your sin? And to me, that's the big issue. And when you start getting hung up on this stuff, most of the time that feels like a smokescreen to me. Like, I'm just going to kind of blame God for my sin nature. That way I don't have to be responsible for it, and God's responsible for everything. Like, well, okay, God gave you a sin nature, but what did you do with it? You sinned. So now what? Now what do we do? Yeah, I think it's really easy to, we don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to take the blame, but like, and oftentimes we almost act like we don't have a choice, but you do have a choice. An example that I use a lot, um, like people will say like, oh, I lost my temper. Like maybe you're married and you got an argument with your with your husband and you're like, oh, he made me lose my temper because he did this, this, and this. That's never happened in our marriage. That's why it's a great thing. Like what? All the time. Uh, and you do have a choice because if your pastor was in the room or if your mo- his mom was in the room or if a friend was in the room, like you wouldn't have yelled and cussed and screamed at him, right? So you do have a choice. And so I think, yeah, we have to take responsibility for our own actions. And it was Adam and Eve who first sinned. It wasn't, God didn't make them sin. It was a choice. And so, yes, it has been handed down to us, and the sin sin nature has been handed down to us, but we have a choice and a say in it. Yeah, and I would say, yeah, I mean, honestly, it does stink. Like, that that is our inclination to be selfish on our own desires. There's debates in Christianity, and theologians debate if we have original sin. In other words, if we were just out of the womb, we are already sinners, 
or if you just, you're not a sinner to you sin, regardless, like we all sin. Like even if you're, one, we've got a one-year-old and he's awesome. He's a sinner. He needs Jesus. <clears throat> and we pray for him every day. Um, but here's the thing about this question. <clears throat> if I sin and is in my nature, why does God hold me to responsible? What is the gospel? The gospel is that you're not responsible for your own sin. The gospel is that Jesus took what you deserve. It's not that it doesn't matter. It does matter significantly. And we say, I say this often because I think it's one of the most beautiful things that is distinctly unique about Christianity is that only in Christianity do you have a God where you have people go to heaven or nirvana or enlightenment, whatever that religion is teaching. Christianity is the only religion in the world where the people that get the goal, the prize, if you will, where their, their sins and their evil was actually dealt with by God. In Islam and other religions, it's very like God is merciful, but you have to do the five pillars, you got to do all these things, and if you're good enough, you made it, or you know, some of the, the Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, the Eightfold Path, all these sorts of things you got to do, and reincarnation, and once you're good enough, the thing is, nobody is perfect, and only in Christianity do you have God who actually takes the sins of our world, or the sins, the sins that we've committed, um, and does something with them, and the beauty is that God doesn't hold you responsible if you follow and trust in Him, um, and so what should we say to that, and so, Yeah. Next question. And don't forget, if you have questions, keep typing them in, texting them in. I know you're enamored by this, but we want to keep answering them, so maybe you're not. All right, next one. <clears throat> Is it acceptable to be angry at God? Absolutely. I think, right? I mean, if we look at the scripture, <laughs> he, like, look at, he like looked at me like, no. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely acceptable. Like, and like our, our emotions in general, like feelings aren't right or wrong. They just are, but it is what you do with them. Um, so I'd say, yes, it's okay to be angry with God. If you look at the Psalms, most of them are people like having a lot of beef with God and asking a lot of questions about God and his character and, and what he was doing. And so, yes, I would say, and then God would reply to that. And so, yes, it's okay to be angry with God. It's okay to talk to God about those things. It's okay to argue with God, but what are we going to do with it? Are we going to say, oh, I'm angry with God because you let this happen and now I'm going to walk away? Because that wouldn't be okay. But being angry with God is absolutely okay. The only thing I'll add to that is this. If, if we talk about anger in the moment, Absolutely, and I think Christine is 100% right. Just go read the Psalms. You cannot read the Psalms and feel like, yeah, God's not really comfortable with my emotions because um, he can't handle me. No, God can 100% handle you. And you read the Psalms, you see there's some pretty strong anger at the Lord for his justice and his mercy and, or lack of justice or lack of mercy or lack of grace. Um, and it's really, really a place to go if you feel emotions strongly to experience that. The question is this. What do you do with that anger at God, and how, how long do you let it stay, and how do you process it? Because if you just stay angry at God forever, you're, you're just wasting yourself because you're, you're getting worked up over small things when you really haven't understood the big picture. So, Yeah, and I like, again, Joe, last week he talked about how if you only read the New Testament and, you're, and you have difficult pain and suffering, like you wouldn't maybe understand what you're supposed to do with it. You're just supposed to tuck it, tuck it away or not deal with it, not feel bad. You know, the Old Testament Psalm, I mean, that's the majority of them. It's like, why is this happening? Even though a lot of times it's their own fault. They're still angry with God. And I, I, I say this too, especially when it comes to pain and suffering, that God gives us our emotions. Like, it's not like they just happen. He's like, why? Like, he gave us our emotions to deal with things. If God is actually God, he's not scared. He's not intimidated. Like, he wants us to process things. And I think oftentimes when we kind of hold in our emotions, don't grieve, don't process whatever is going on, that's when we actually find the most harm and the most hurt. We can't actually progress in our life, grow closer to Jesus, that sort of thing, if we don't deal with the emotions that we have. And so I would say, yes, it's absolutely acceptable because 
God, you know, God wants us to work through things, and uh, you know, he, allow, he allows us to question him, and he, he wants us to do these sorts of things. And so even if it's our own fault, I mean, we're, we're sinful beings that don't know everything, and the fact that we're even communicating to him, I think, is at least a, is a good thing. I don't know. You look like you were going to say something. So I'm, I'm thinking about Job, but I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> okay. Let it go. Next question. <clears throat> How do I find a mentor? Yeah, I would say it's definitely on you to find a mentor. I think a lot of times it's easy to say, oh, I wish, you know, someone older wiser would just come along and grab my hand and show me how to do life. Uh, but it's on you to, to go and to ask for that. And I'd say a great place to look would be within your local church. And so looking around, and ob obviously there's some ideal factors about someone maybe being a life season ahead of you and a couple years older than you or even a lot of years older than you. There's some benefits there. But also you can find a mentor who's a peer-to-peer -peer mentor relationship. I, I have seen a lot of fruit in my life uh, from women who are younger than me, women who are my age, and women who are older than me and much older than me. But it looks like being intentional and asking for that. And, and so spending some time with them and then kind of defining the relationship and what, what you want from that. And I would say if you are looking for a mentor, you have to be with okay with them telling you hard things and speaking into you and being that iron that sharpens iron and calling out the sin in you and calling out the things in you that need to grow, which we do not like. Uh, we really buck up against that, and it's really easy to get defensive, but you, you and your men mentor have to have those conversations kind of at the forefront of things, I would say, so that you can prepare your relationship for when those times come, because it's going to come. You're a sinner. Your mentor, if she's being honest with you or he's being honest with you, he is going to see things in you that you can't see that aren't going to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. But if you really want to grow spiritually, you, you got to embrace that, even though it stings. The end. Yeah, well, I, like Christina said, I think it's on you to ask. Um, like, for example, you know, Christina and I are from the Raleigh area. Originally, we, went to, we met at UNC Wilmington. We moved back here for, what, two years? I met with Dave and I met every other Wednesday morning, um, and he went out of his way, and it was a, just a great time for me to ask questions, to learn more. I think if you're younger, it's on you to not just ask, but say, hey, we want to be mentoring. And I want you to know, like Christina said, in your local church is a great way to find it. And because I, you know, get to spend a lot of time with people at our church, I know that people that are older would love to mentor. Um, but, but asking that question, there are so many men and women in this church that would love to do it. How do you go about finding it? I think it's being very intentional to say, hey, I would love if you could help me out in this area or with this season of life. And just be honest about what that is. Like, for example, and I don't want <clears throat> to share this and be like, oh, look at me, but this is what happened this week and this is how you do it. So I had a church planner reach out to me and asked if I could coach him through some things. And so we made a list of six things. We, we put it on the calendar over the next few months, and we're going to be talking through the, I'm going to talk, talking through these things with him. But if he had reached out to me and said, hey, can I just call you? I've got some questions. And I said, sure. And we, we did that. And then he was like, well, hey, can I call you again? Like, it just wouldn't have been like, what are we doing? But the fact that we were, he was like, here's what I want to do. Can we do this? We can put on the schedule. I know what I'm actually getting in. Like, I know what to prepare for, what to talk about. But I would say ask. Tell him what you would want them to mentor you on and men and women, younger and older, everybody wants to do it. It's just people are afraid of asking. And so if you're younger, I would say reach out to somebody, season of life, job, career, and say, hey, can you do this? Here's what I would like to learn from you. I, I've, very few people would actually would, would say no to that. So. Yeah, and I think it's important for you as the mentee to come with questions. Don't just like yep. stare at your mentor in the eyes and be like, cool. 
Like, tell me all the things. Um, so come prepared with questions so that they can mentor you best and tell them what you're struggling with and tell them what you're sitting with and uh, so that they can walk alongside you well and, and be open and honest and really vulnerable and transparent so that they can do that. I'll also say I, I'm rereading Henry Cloud's book, Boundaries. I think it's important. You can't have a community of one. So I think sometimes an issue with mentors is like you're looking for, for one mentor to do all the things for you all the time. That's not realistic. That mentor has a life outside of you. And so I think it's important to have community that, that looks more holistic, that's, that's like more well embodied than that. So like for me, I have a, a woman that I reach out to for help when it comes to mom stuff. I have another woman that I reach out to when it comes to pastor's wife stuff. I have another woman that I reach out to when it comes uh, to just my, my personal walk with the Lord. If I was relying on one person for all of my needs, that just wouldn't be, yeah, that wouldn't work. Yeah. Cool. We'll do another one. <clears throat> Are members of the LGBTQ community welcome at New City? Yes, absolutely. But we'll talk further about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone is welcome at New City. I mean, there are no requirements. Uh, you're, if, you know, everyone is welcome. Um, and we love everyone. And so, yeah, yeah. Is there a question behind that question? Probably. <laughs> Yeah, so everyone, everyone is, is welcome. And, and I'll say this is such a hard topic. And I'll, I'll say to you before we answer this, like give us some grace, um, us up here who are trying to answer this question. This is a living room conversation for sure. Um, this is a conversation that would work best if I was sitting in a room with you and we were going back and forth and I could ask you questions and you can ask me questions, but that's not the format we're in now. And so we're not gonna answer this perfectly and you might leave upset, but have a little grace for us that we're just up here and we, we're not able to hear your other side of the things. We don't know your story or anything like that, but everyone is welcome at, at New City. It doesn't matter what your sexuality is. Also, I think it's really important, and it's just such a hard thing in the Christian culture, and it's been done poorly by the church and probably will continue to be done poorly by the church sometimes, by some churches, but we all sin sexually. So we're all the same, you know, and I think for a long time the church was like, this is a greater sin. It's not a greater sin. Sin is sin. There is no level of sin. And when it comes to sexual sin, we're all in the same, like, we're all in the same area. We've all sinned sexually. There's not a soul that has not sinned sexually. So I'll say that, and then I'll let you guys help me with this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Come I, on. I think it's hard. It's really hard to answer this question because it's, like Dave said, there's probably some, there's probably another question there that involves a conversation and this is not us trying to duck the question. It just involves more than this conversation. I would say one of the things that's frustrating and, and is hard about this is one of the things that's frustrating to me is that, like Christina said, we all sin sexually. Um, I guess put it this way. So we believe that the scripture is clear that a sexual relationship between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage is how God designed sexual relationships to flourish. So outside of that, acting on those on those sexual impulses, whether it's heterosexually or homosexually, is falling short of what God desires. The thing that frustrates me about this conversation is that we can be so LGBTQ hating and judgmental when pornography is the bigger issue for a lot of, for a lot of straight people. Like, I know way more people that are looking at porn and struggling sexually that are heterosexual than homosexual, and we say nothing. Why? Because it's easy for us to judge people that, that struggle with stuff that we don't struggle with. Um, and so New City Church, everyone is absolutely welcomed and loved. I would say this, though, just to be completely honest with you, when New City launched, we had someone who came um, who identified as gay, and he said, I, I love the church, I love what you're doing, you know, what's your stance on this? And just kind of said, yes, we do believe that what Scripture says is best, um, but everyone's welcome. And he said, well, because I, I want to actively pursue this lifestyle, 
Like, I can't, this church isn't the church for me. And I said, I totally understand. I totally get it that, you're gonna, that you feel like you can't be in community here because you want to pursue that. Um, but he is welcome. And if, you, if that's a struggle for you, I, I would say, too, like, so often, and I understand, especially in the church world, you, you, we don't say anything because of how the church has treated this community. But I would say, man, we would, would love to just, I, I think it would be, you'd be doing yourself a disservice by not telling anybody if you, are a same, if you struggle with same-sex attraction or you just have same-sex attraction, I think just talking through it, having people that can be friends and love you through that is crucial. And you just need to know if that's you or you have friends that, are, that, that no one's getting kicked out, nobody's saying, oh, you, you, you have same-sex, you can't. Everybody is welcome to come here. We love to walk through that road. And last thing I would say is what's hard for me about this issue is because I'm a straight man, right? I'm a straight man. I have, I have no idea what it's like. And I'll just say this. It is easy for me to say this is what God says when I don't have same-sex attraction. I will never fully understand what it's like to have same-sex attraction and, and want to be faithful and to, de- de- to deny yourself what, what seems like is natural for you. Um, I have friends that are Christians that are gay that pursue celibacy, and I'm just like, man, I, I am just in awe of their strength and their, their desire to pursue that, even though their desires, their, their fleshly desires are telling them to do something else. But it's a hard, hard thing to answer in this setting. So uh, The only other thing I'd add would be this. Just as a church, do all of us a favor and be very, very careful about your words. Because in our culture, those letters, LGBTQ, they are used as identifiers. They are used to create a sense of identity and they're used to define a person's personhood. So if you say anything that comes across as anti any of those letters, the, the culture and the individuals oftentimes perceive an attack on their very nature, that you've now judged, rejected, vilified, hated, and all those things just come simply by saying something. So my encouragement to you, be very careful with your words, be very careful about demonstrating love first, and remember that the scripture is really clear about behavior and activity. Being tempted towards a behavior or an activity or having a proclivity towards a behavior or an activity is not sin. It is sin to participate in those behaviors and those activities. So there are many, many people on that list, LGBTQ, that live a pure godly life. Many times much pure, as Dylan and I know some people and I've met some people and I've been impressed and amazed. I could tell you stories. And I have people in my own family that I would say are believers and in the kingdom that this is where they're at. How they choose to live is more the issue of sin, not their nature, not their identity. And I would hope that they could find a way to find identity in Christ and let all those other things come across. But what I would say to you this, just like every other person you meet, if someone comes across that's got one of the letters and that's how they identify, what they need is Jesus. They don't need a lecture on purity. They don't need to be told what's wrong with them. What they need is Jesus to come in and deal with their life and their sin. And then I would say, I'm confident enough in Jesus' ability to work in someone's life to let all that stuff shake out after they come to to faith. But let's focus on that particular issue and not get hung up on one particular sin. Yeah, I think that's so good. And I I would just love if, if we as a church would, would be sensitive to that and, and aware of that, like that if a 
two women were to walk in holding hands and like clearly in a relationship that we wouldn't be like, oh, we don't know what to do about that. Just like, hey, you let me in here? Like yeah. you, anyone can come in here. If someone comes up smelling like drugs, like we have to be a church that's, that's willing to welcome. If you're welcoming me and these guys who are also sinners, like we have to be willing to welcome everyone uh, and to be sensitive to that. And uh, this might be a tangent and we can, we can steer uh, otherwise if we need to. But I think that what, we, what you were talking about, Dave, is probably one of the saddest things about the this kind of movement to me is what Satan has done with the identity piece of it. Um, because I, I can't imagine, and I do wrestle with this because to like, so have some grace for us here. Like we're not insensitive. Like it, it is confusing. These are one of, this is one of the things that I wrestle with God of. If, 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 if it's a monogamous relationship, like why God, like, why do you say this? Like, this is one of those things that even I question, but at the same time, the identity piece is, is really sad to me because we're not heterosexual. We're not homosexual. Like, we're children of God. Like, that is where our identity needs to be rooted in, not in our sexuality. It's such a sm- You can't even do it in public. Like, your sexuality is such a small piece of, of, of yeah. So, I'm not advocating for a public. Okay. Yeah, it's so good. Um, thank, I just want to say thank you for whoever asked this question, for your courage to do that. And not only do I think it would be helpful for you to let people in on that, it would be helpful for us to learn from you. Mm-hmm. You have a lot to teach the church, and we, we want to know how to love that community well. And as a straight man, I'm sure I've not always done that. And so it's, hel- it's helpful for me to have men and women who would identify you know, as same-sex attracted to come and say, hey, when you say this or when New City does this, here's how we perceive it. You have a lot to offer, and you're extremely valuable to God and this church. And so we just it would be good for us as well to learn from you. Amen. So, um, I guess we'll do one more. Yeah, okay, we'll do, we'll do one more. We're not Tam here. Uh, what do you think the thorn in Paul's side was? And so, yeah, Paul, so we're, you know, this year we're doing a series on 1 Corinthians written by Paul. I think it's in 2 Corinthians, maybe. Uh, he talks about how he had a thorn, that the Lord had given him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, and he had pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from him. Um, I wrote a paper about this in seminary. I don't know how to try to think back of. We don't actually know what it is. So there's a couple of things, and you know, Dave, since he actually knows what's right and wrong, he'll correct me. Um, <laughs> there's debate about what it is. It could be a sin issue that Paul had some sin issue that he was praying that God would take away, but in order to keep Paul humble, he didn't take it away from him. Um, some people say it was his poor eyesight. So actually, a lot of Paul's letters he didn't actually write. So he would have someone who. He would speak, and they would write down what he was saying, and then at the end of the letter, he would say, I'm writing this in my own hand so that you know it's from me, and it'd be in big letters. So he couldn't see very well. Um, it could be sort of, I mean, they probably didn't have the terms for it back then, but sort of, uh, some, some brain damage. So if you remember Paul's conversion, he fell from a horse, hit his head probably, saw some immaculate light that was Jesus. It might have had some residual effect on his, that might have made his eyesight be bad. Um, he could have had some brain damage or just some like, trying to recover from that significant moment that he actually saw the glory of God in some way. Um, we don't actually know what it is, but we do know that, Paul, that God gave Paul something to keep him humble, to show him that he also needed to rely on the Lord. But I don't know what it was. I think we can only speculate, so we don't have the answer, unless Dave does. No, that, that was a great answer, Dylan. Um, really good. I, I would only say this. Behind this question, we like to know many things in Scripture we want to know. Many things we'd love to know. What was actually going on here? What did this look like? How did God do this? Why did God do that? We can ask a lot of questions of Scripture that we don't get answers to. So here's what I would say about that question, though I don't know exactly what it was. I lean towards maybe eyesight or um, some kind of physical struggle for him 
as a result of the multiple stonings and beatings <laughs> he took for his faith. Well, you know, just there was one time he was stoned and they, the disciples were standing around thinking he was dead. Mm-hmm. They're like literally looking going, what do we do? Paul's dead. They just stoned him. Maybe and we should fact, get out of here. It could be argued that he had a near-death experience because he talked about going into the heavens and coming back. He did. So, so that's how bad his experiences were. So it could be anything. Here's the question. Why did Paul write that he had a thorn in the flesh and not say what it was? Well, I think part of that is because we all might experience some kind of thorn in the flesh or have some experience in our life that like, God, take this away from me. This is not what I want. This is not what I want. Why don't you change this? And Paul gives the example of three times he asked the Lord to take it away, and three times the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. So to me, I go behind the question and just go, if you're dealing with something like that, regardless of what it is, God's answer is my grace is sufficient for you. And so let's stick there. Cool. We'll, and we'll do one more quick one, and then we'll end today. I want to say this, too. We do this because questions are good. We don't have all the answers, but we want to be people that, that are seeking and asking God, and he's not intimidated or scared by your questions, um, but he loves us through them. And so we'll do one more. I don't know what you're laughing at. I'm laughing because I'm thinking, can you imagine God in heaven going, oh, no, please don't ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do one it's more. It's so silly. Yeah, so we'll all answer. I'll go last real quick. What would you love to see happen at New City? And then we'll end. I would love to see our mission be fulfilled, that we help meet, help people meet Jesus and grow in their relationship with him. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I would love to see many, many people get connected to Jesus, have their eternity transformed, have their lives transformed, have their families transformed, have their destiny transformed, have their legacy of their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren transformed by the gospel, which is Christ died for us, that we can have forgiveness of sins and be transformed. That's what I'd love to see. Yeah, that was a great answer. Uh, I don't know. There's a million things that I would love to see happen at New City. I think, yeah, just, you know, Jesus changing people. Um, Jesus radically changed my life, and so I want I want that for everyone. And so that's what I would love to see. I'd also love to see marriages get saved. I, lo- I would love to see chains be broken when it comes to addiction, um, whether that be pornography or lust or uh, alcohol or drugs or social media or whatever it is. Uh, so chains be broken, marriages be be established. Be, be saved, those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, what they said, you know, our mission is to help people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. That's all that matters. Like, I, I don't care about the size of New City for the size sake. I don't care how about how much money or influence we have or don't have. I don't care about, I mean, everything we do is to help people meet Jesus. I mean, that's, that's all that matters. I mean, we've got one life, and what we do with Jesus is the ultimate thing. And the gospel is just incredible news that Jesus gave his life for us, not because we deserve it, because he loves us. And so, you know, that, that, that plays out a lot of ways. You know, if, you're, if you call New City Home, you know, this year we have our Just One campaign. We're, we're praying that God would bring 200, we would average 250 people on a weekend here at New City Church. I don't care about the number. I just want us to play a part in helping meet Jesus. Um, whether that's other churches, I pray regularly that God would grow every single church. If New City was the smallest church in Raleigh, I would consider that a massive win. It would be a massive win because I want to see people meet Jesus. If you're here in New City and you're not connected, I would love to find you to help you find a church that you get connected at. Same thing when people come to New City. I'm like, okay, why did they come here? If they were connected at another church, I'm like, Ugh. if they were just visiting or they were going somewhere they weren't connected, then this is a great spot for them to get connected. But it's about Jesus, why we want to plant churches. It's, this is, it's not about New City. It's about people meeting Jesus. And so everything we do is about that. We get it wrong. I get it wrong. We try. We, things don't always work out but it's not about New City at all. 
it's purely about Jesus. That we, we don't gather for a pep rally to make us feel good because God said something we need. No, we gather because Jesus is king, and you will not experience life to the degree that you were meant to experience it, both not just in the life to come, but also in this life, if you do not have, know, and love Jesus. And so that's what we're about, is to see people meet Jesus. So, so thanks for being with us. Dave, you want to close us out in prayer, and then we'll be done.